I'd like to begin with a trigger warning. This is completely, utterly mad. You're gone. This is somewhat important today, just so you know. You can scoot your chairs or what have you. Um, but I'm going to stay over here largely because that's where this is. And we could debate what a bad idea putting the screen over here is, but that's, that's for another day. Um, no. I don't think so. Yeah. That would be interesting, though, wouldn't it, to have it all connected? It would make more sense to have a whole bunch of whiteboards and, like, one screen, but that's a different deal. We have two goals. Welcome. We have two goals. One, to help you understand why it matters that Luther debated Erasmus of Rotterdam, and that's secondary because it really isn't that important. And then to talk about what happened in the debate and the particular insight, the single insight that Luther had from the scriptures about Christianity that influences everything about the movement that was the Reformation that is the turning around of Christianity in Europe in the 1500s, which is really about the movement that is Christianity, which is what Jesus did and how what Jesus did has completely renovated this world and the world to come. We want the particular insight Luther had that helped him see that clearly when very few others in his age did, and he was able to help many others see that clearly as well because of it. We want to recapture that. We want to put it in a bottle. We want to drink that bottle and then have it change our lives too. That's the goal. So, the Heidelberg Disputation. Basically, as annoying as that sounds, it was a really big, really famous, popular debate in the Middle Ages for fun. Okay? Now, yeah, you're like, well, yeah, right. I could see that. Debates could totally be fun. Well, good for you for seeing outside the box. So imagine for a moment that you live in an era where, unless you happen to be one of the very few wealthy people, you work in the mud. You work in the mud every day. Whether you're hunting in the mud or whether you're growing things in the mud, you're working in the mud. No tractors. You might have an ox if you're lucky. You're putting some plants in the ground. You hope enough of it grows that you can give some to the king and still not starve yourself. This is every day. Not five days a week with Saturdays and Sundays off. This is every day of your life. So, in that world, even though nothing else would really compare... How do I say this? Even though today you can't imagine finding this interesting, in that world, if two guys stand on stage and can say words that make any sense at all and wear funny clothes and talk to each other and you get to go listen for three hours and not be in the mud, you're like, hey, entertainment. Yeah? And, and so that's what it was. So today we have Madonna. You know, Madonna is not today, I guess. We used to have a lady named Madonna who everyone knew who she was. Um, you still probably have heard the name. She's one of the most famous people in the world. How do you know you're famous? When they know you by one name, you're famous. Okay? Prince... Madonna, we've got a couple others these days. Dido made it that far. I don't know how Dido got that far. Who else? Who else would be in there? Hmm? Beyonce, there you go. Obama, yeah, that works. Um, see, is it, but yeah, Trump. 
because the Donald is two words, and Donald wouldn't do it by itself, but Trump, definitely there. So, yeah, point being, known by one name, famous. Erasmus, famous in that era for debating. When he debated and had these things go on, the people who came went away saying that wasn't just entertainment, that was good entertainment. So Erasmus, making a living as a Roman Catholic theologian, fairly progressive, makes fun of Roman Catholicism a little bit, says, we need to fix some things here or there, but he's not going to really put his neck on the line. But this is what he does for a living. And he hears about this young, upstart, you know, rookie contract guy who's kind of entertaining to talk to. His name's Luther, he's caused a stir, but he kind of wants to make some changes too. We'll bring the guy along, do a little show, he's the opening act, I'll close it off. And, you know, he rises a little and I know, I'm friends with the new guy, people like me still more, blah, blah, blah. They set it up, they put it together, they're going to talk about the, the will in Christianity or the will in human life and philosophy, and he starts talking, and then he realizes very quickly in the middle of you know, Luther's opening arguments, this guy ain't here for a show, this guy's here for a fight. And Luther brings all of his uh, potential learning, all of his thinking to this thing, and just crushes Erasmus in the debate, just destroys him. Uh, not so much because he was right and Erasmus was wrong, Erasmus was unprepared. I don't know if you ever watched like fighting or jiu-jitsu or anything like that, and you see a guy who's good go up against one of the kind of ringer guys, they're just unprepared. They can't even begin to fight in that match. Or uh, forget what, whatever sport you're into. Um, if you take the best, the absolute best high school basketball team, and you have them go play one of the worst college basketball teams, they're still going to lose because the college team is just bigger and stronger. And so you're unprepared. Erasmus was unprepared for Luther. As a result of this, he never talks to the guy again. <laughs> they, they're not friends. Uh, Erasmus kind of fades, and Luther's star continues to rise. But see, this is the part that doesn't matter. That's just the story. That's just the history. What matters is when Luther came prepared to debate, he had a very particular insight, which has everything to do with how you can view all of Christianity all the time. And if you get this thing right, it's not going to guarantee that you're always right, but it will help you know how not to be wrong. It will help you know how to sniff out the lie of self-idolatry, which is built into all of us, call it what it is, stamp it on the ground, and then walk forward knowing that Jesus is right. And what do I mean by that? That sounds too easy in a sense, but that's kind of, that's how hard it is. It's not that easy to remember that Jesus is right. It's actually really hard. Um, so that's kind of where we're going to go. All right. The other thing you got to know about these debates, oh, is that they were always founded on these things called theses. So when I say theses or thesis, either you've heard the word before and you despise it, or you've never heard the word before and you don't want to. I agree. I don't know why. I I remember being in grade school and having someone try to tell me how to write a thesis statement, right? You been there, right? And I couldn't for the life of me figure out what this person wanted me to do. And I was a good student. I'm like, I'll just do whatever. Tell me what to do. I'll write it down. I'll write it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And I could not learn what a thesis statement was. I'm an English major. I love writing. I love arguments. I love, I love words. I love thesis statements, but I still don't know how to talk about them and have them make sense. Um, so a thesis is just an idea. Like, I don't know why we don't just call them ideas. Your teacher's not wanting you to write a thesis statement. They want you to write an idea. That makes sense, doesn't it? Write an idea. Here's my idea. Dogs fly. 
Okay, yeah, that, that would be a great thesis statement. Now you got to prove it, and the paper is you're just proving the idea. Here's my idea, here's why it's true, right? Anyhow, back in the day, they did it that way for the whole debate. So you'd come prepared with a bunch of these ideas, and each idea is supposed to build upon the one before it toward a bigger idea at the end. So a bunch of thesis statements leading to a final thesis. Yuck! Anyhow... What we're going to be doing today is looking at those statements. Luther, in the disputation, would have made arguments behind each one of these. I'm going to do that a little bit today, but I'm not going to be doing the same thing that he did. I'm also going to do it slightly out of order. We're going to bounce around a little bit, and we're going to skip a few things, so that it doesn't have, well, how do I say this? So that we, as from our point of view looking back, can focus on the most important thing, and not get distracted by the side arguments like I tend to do when I talk. <laughs> um, so, we're starting with number 21, and I've split it into two to try to make it bite-sizable. We're starting here, it's going to come back in the middle as well, because this is kind of the big idea. The one who seeks to know God through his own experiences will eventually call evil good, and he will call good evil. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you want to know who God is, what he does, how he thinks, and the measure of that is what you see, what you smell, what you taste, what you feel, what you hear of yourself. I'm going to walk into the world, I'm going to figure out who God is. Then eventually you will be a person who doesn't know good from evil. In fact, you will be the opposite of good. You will only know evil and you'll call it good all the time. That's his proposition and we're going to try to prove that Right, that we're going to move our way to this idea. But then the other side of this idea is so essential. That the one who knows God in the crucified Christ is truly free and therefore enlightened to call all things what they truly are, which means to call good, good, and to call evil, evil, and to call things that aren't either, well, they aren't either. The proposition here is that if you don't have Christ, you can't do that. If you don't have Christ, you cannot see the world as it really is. And it's because you will be, you're trapped in the need to make the world okay. You have a mental click that's called sin, when we talk about it, that is a need to make the world okay. And the fact of the matter is, if you have to make the world okay, the only way to do it is to switch good and evil around and start calling the evil good. So you can tell yourself you're good too. But if you are in Christ, you have no need to do that. You can call your own evil inside what it is. And as a result, be free enough to call everything else what it is and truly see. That's the goal, at least. All right. So the layout here is a little weird so we can see things at the same time. So just ignore number two, number one. I love this. This was not on purpose, but do you, do you get the joke? I just want to make you laugh at the joke. Do you see it? What do you, what do you say about this? How do I say look at one and not the other? Look at, no, look at one. There's two ones. You're right. Number one and number one. No one thinks it's funny. Do you even, is, it bad, is it that bad of a joke? <laughs> Thank you. Two laughs. It takes people from my own congregation to laugh at me. Thank you. Anyway, doesn't matter. We'll get to the second number one in a minute. It's the same as the first number one. <laughs> the Ten Commandments. The clearest explanation of life on earth cannot advance humanity into perfection. In fact, it often hinders us. This is the opening statement. The Ten Commandments is... A perfect explanation of life that cannot make you perfect and gets in the way. What does that mean? If you look carefully at the Ten Commandments, you will find it describes 
how to handle every relationship in your life in a perfect way. How should you relate to God? Well, you should know he exists. You should know his name and you should listen to what he says. How do you relate to the rest of God's world under the authorities that he's placed you under? Uh, For example, your father and your mother, but then also the mayor of the town and the governments around you and all these things. And what should you do with all the other people that are around you? You should not kill them, by and large. You should help their bodies do well. And if their bodies happen to be of the opposite sex, you should consider marrying one of them so you can make some more bodies. And in that marriage, making more bodies, the community grows. And then the community can make use of those many hands to gather many good things. That would be stuff to have property, which we share with each other, but we don't steal from each other. And in all of this, we become known for the good we do to each other. You have a good name, which you don't want anyone to lie about and steal from you, and so, of course, you wouldn't lie about them. And in this, you seek contentment and goodness in what you have, rather than assuming life's always a matter of what you don't have. That's the Ten Commandments. It's a perfect description of life. The problem is... As perfect as the description is, it can't help us. We can't do it. No matter how hard we try, we still hate our neighbors. We still covet their stuff. And the more that we try to use it to get perfect, the worse we get. Because it works like this. Here's my law for making me perfect. I think I should be able to get over it. I try. Oh, man, I'm not perfect. I try again. Oh, man, I'm not perfect. I know. (laughs) Push that bar down just a touch. Climb over the top of my new law I just made that I say is the old law, but it's not. I changed it. Look, I'm perfect. I made it. I'm good. I'm okay. Yeah? We do that all the time. All the time. And then we see someone else doing it. They're like this. They're like, stop it! You know? You don't get a cheat. Only I get a cheat. It hinders us. We can't reach perfection. All right. So, much less then. If the Ten Commandments can't save you, how much more are your opinions going to save you? Much less than can merely human opinions, disciplines done over and over, even with the complete use of all of our faculties, ever lead to such perfection. Uh, My friend and I were having a conversation about nutrition as she was in here. We were debating what's the most healthy way to eat so that you live the longest. Well, these would be what we call human opinions and disciplines. An opinion would be just your idea. A discipline, in theory, would be something that we could prove to be true. So let's say we can prove that it's true, that it's better to eat this and not that. Wonderful. Will this make you live forever? No. Will it save you on Judgment Day? No. It has nothing to do with that. If I can't get perfect keeping the Ten Commandments, my belief about vegetables or meats or fats or grains or sugars or crystals or environmentalism or jujitsu or whatever, penance and a purgatory, my prayer journal, knowing all the Lutheran doctrine by name, Whatever it is I want to put in there that becomes my personal discipline that's not the Word of God, it, it's worse at helping me be perfect. Not better than the Ten Commandments. So we cannot get there. That's the real heart of this thing. And although what we do always appears to be a path to something better, it is nevertheless likely to be a damnable sin. So, Ten Commandments or my opinion regardless of which one it is, when I try to do a good thing as a son of Adam born in this world, it is not only likely, it is natural that the good thing I do is also a damnable sin. Now, I'm not using the word damnable as a curse word, other than that it would be God's curse on us. 
What I'm trying to demonstrate with that language is the deep and grave wickedness, the animal level, instinctual wickedness of my every thought, word, and deed. So that even when I set out to do something good, I know the fourth commandment says, fathers, take care of your children. So I set out to take care of my children. Why do I put so much effort into my children? Is it because they are children? No, I don't put a lot of effort into your children, just my children. Okay, so what is it about them that makes them special? Well, they're so smart, and they're so good-looking. Just like, you follow it? Why do I love my children? Not because I'm so loving. I love my children because I love me. I love me. And so even the good work of feeding my children the best I can, providing clothing for them, giving an education, trying to help them be good in the world, all is tainted with this slippery, dark ichor of me and my pride. As I'm not alone. I'm not alone. We're all just like this. Everything we do, even the best, is tainted with damnable sin. And at the same time, what God does and what God is doing, often we think it's evil, but it's nevertheless the most everlasting goodness. So, see if you can follow me on this one. It's a little tougher if you haven't ever had somebody close to you die. It's a little tougher. But anybody who's had someone close to them die, and by that I mean you knew them well enough to care when they died, anybody who's had that happen has then gone through the process of effectively looking at God, wherever he is, and saying, why did this happen? Right? Now, let's take it a notch down from death and just to something bad that you didn't want to have happen in your life, because... Maybe you can relate to that. You still had what you didn't want to happen, happen, and you said to God, why did this happen? Now, the only reason you're asking that question is because you believe God did an evil thing. I want you to think about what I just said. The only reason you would ever ask God why is because you believe what he did was evil. Because if he did what was good, you wouldn't say why. You'd say thank you. If, if, if my aunt calls me up, I'm dying, and I'm going to leave you my million-dollar fortune, I'm not going to say, why? I'm going to say, thank you. Right? When We don't ask why when the good things happen. We assume they should, as those who have a true God should assume. And yet they don't happen as we expect it, and then we say, why? Why? Because we think he did evil. But then here's the thing. Can God do evil? Can a good God do evil? I mean, just philosophically, no, of course he can't do evil. So if you believe in a good God, and you saw something happen, you said, why God? You thought he was evil. Hence, what God is doing appeared to be evil to you. But it's nevertheless not just likely to be, it must be, because God did it the truest good. Now this has an even greater ramification on the cross. Okay? The cross, if you think, why about anything else in the world? You have to say why about the cross. God comes in the person of his everlasting son and we murder him? We murdered him. God. It's impossible. We did, we did something impossible. We murdered God. What could be worse than murdering the only good God? What do you do after that as a creation when you've just killed the only good God? 
How do you possibly survive? And yet, because it was God's doing, it's the greatest good. It's exactly how we do survive. We would not survive without that. Is it, were we so great to murder God and make it all work out? No, we were so evil. But God was so good that he was able to take even our great evil and turn it around and make it, make it achieve a goodness. So God's work is not easy to see because when we see it, we think it's bad. And we think our work's good, except it's not. It's actually quite evil. And this is the trap we're in. So that what humans do when we do those things that appear good for both us and those around us, um, oh, well, this isn't a conclusion. This is a, a caveat. It's important that you understand, I am not saying that everything you do is a damnable sin and therefore you should never do anything good and you might as well be thrown in jail right now because that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that different actions we have as humans don't have different effects on other humans. I'm saying that on Judgment Day, there is no difference between a thought, a word, and a deed when it comes to whether or not you are damned. There is a difference between a thought and a word and a deed now. If I think a dirty thought about you and never say it, it never really hurts you. If I say it to someone else who's not around you, it hurts you, but not nearly as much as if I enact it. If I say, I hate that person, I wish they were dead, that's different than I actually kill you. Right, And so thought, word, and deed have different ramifications. It is not as though everything you do is criminal as an offense and should be stopped. But neither does that make it not damnable. You want to separate those things from each other. Separate God's sight from our sight. Also then, the work of God that he is doing upon the world by means of the Ten Commandments is not itself tarnished by our imperfections. But that is no excuse on our behalf. So just because we don't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly doesn't mean they're imperfect. It just means we're imperfect. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to keep them. It just means we keep them knowing we won't. And the person says, well, why would you do that? The answer is because they're good. Why would you not do that? Why would you not try to do good? Why would you want to do evil? Oh, because we are. Which is why you asked the question. It was your evil wanting to defend itself. We're amazingly sick little creatures. It's really something. We're, we're animal in that regard. So, not a, not a major point, but an important one. And moving on. Uh, the best and truest things that any human does remains damnable. And thus, oh, there's a typo here. Oh, I learned I can fix it. This isn't my computer, but I can still fix it. Hold on, here we go. You, uh-oh, but I don't know how to type on this keyboard. There we go. The best and truest things that any human does remain... Uh, English major, gotta fix it, OCD. There we go. The best and truest things that any human does remain damnable unless Christians fear their corruption of all things out of a pious love of God. And I should say, remain damnable for Christians. Command X, F-O-R, nope. Typing on the wrong keyboard. F-O-R, for Christians... Unless, which was command paste, they, there we go. Sorry, everybody. Learn as we go. I forgot to mention these are my translations of Luther and not the ones you'll find in a book. The best and truest things that any human does remain damnable for Christians unless they fear their corruption of all things out of a pious love of God. So here's where it kind of changes ground. The amazing superpower of the Christian is to be able to know you you are damned and you should be damned and that you're not. Everything I do is damnable 
Except that in Jesus, everything I do is forgiven. And so it's not. So out of a pious faith alone, out of a fearful awareness that God said is true, and even if I can't see that what I thought was damnable, it is, because of that alone, now it's not damnable at all. It's forgiven. In Christ, it's entirely forgiven. The only sins that can't be forgiven in Christ are the ones that you don't think are sins. The only damnation is the one you say doesn't exist. So the person who says, I don't deserve to be damned, they're the only damned one. (laughs) And, And the one who is a poor, miserable sinner, well, they're covered in Jesus. So it's not as though this is a cause for despair, and that's where this is going to go here in a moment. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of clips from uh, Ecclesiastes, though, as we move through this. I threw these in at the last minute, and they may or may not directly connect, but I think they do. I mean, this is sort of, 11.9 is sort of um, Luther. uh, Luther says this, Solomon says this, they're kind of the same thing. That all of human life is damnable, and Christ is the only hope. Well, okay, so how should you approach your life, young man? The greatest mind in the history of the world says this. Young man, be happy while you are a child, and let your heart make you glad during the days of your youth. Walk down the roads on which your heart leads you, and on the way your eyes see, but know that for all of these God will bring you into judgment. Well, that's intense. I thought it was kind of happy there for a moment, right? Was, Wait a minute. Well, first, remember, judgment for you as a Christian is a different thing than judgment for the non-Christian. Judgment for you is absolution. Judgment for you is forgiveness. So for all things in life, wherever you walk, whatever you put your hand to, the Lord will bring you into absolution and forgiveness on the final day. For the rest of the world, they will be brought to justice. So you can see hope in this right away. But what's he saying here? Basically, it is the fear of judgment that makes judgment not bad. (laughs) If you are afraid of being judged for your works, you're forgiven. If you're happy to be judged for your works, that's when it becomes a problem. The unbelief can't even see it. I don't know if that made sense. Hopefully it did a little bit. Number eight. How much more, then, is everything humanity has ever done damnable when trusted in with brash sanctimonious or carnal self-confidence. All right, so coming out of this again, right? If it's damnable when I'm a Christian and in pious fear and covered in Christ, my flesh is still damnable. I will not be damned, but what I am is damnable. If that is still true, even while I'm fully justified in Christ, how much worse is it for somebody who doesn't have Jesus? And all they got is the damnable. All they got is the damnable and a big effort to trust it. So I got a crystal at the store today. It has superpowers. I place them all over my house, and they protect me from evil things. People do that. People do that. Why? Because they're trusting in their carnal nature to find a way out of their damnability, and they'll believe anything as long as they don't have to call themselves bad. Now we're going to skip a little narrow anti-papist digression in 9 and 10 and get back to the main point in 11. Folly cannot be avoided in anything we humans do, nor true hope present for us, unless first we see that a perfect reckoning of justice upon every thought, word, and action is a real and certain future. So if you don't believe 
that God is going to eventually bring justice on the world in some way, the only result then, I just did it a moment ago with the lady with the crystals. I assume it was a lady. Not as many guys are into the crystals. They do different things with their idolatry. Um, there are guys who are into crystals, but not as many. Point being, blah. Once you walk down that road of having to let your self-confidence in your repeated rituals that you discover in the world convince you that you're good, there's only two real options for you. Complete idiocy and complete despair. So the lady who's talking about her crystals saving her, you know why she's, here, you need a crystal too, it will heal you. You know why she's doing that? Because the alternative is despair. She'd rather believe a rock can heal her than admit what she really knows and is terrifying. So you cannot have you one without the other unless you reckon with that there's a judgment. That there's a judgment. Uh, that, in fact, I am, again, evil. Another tangent into free will. It's not as important for today. But then, this is also a side tangent just for this phrase, but it does collect, connect with the life life today quite a bit. Uh, anyone who thinks he can receive forgiveness by doing his best, this actually would be kind of the answer a lot of people would give, by the way. Like the lady with the crystals again. Well, isn't she just doing her best? Isn't she just trying to find God in her own way? Isn't she just meaning well and being a good person? However you want to spin that, the Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages were saying, do what is in you. Do what is in you. That was their, their excuse. Um, anyone who thinks he can receive forgiveness by trying really hard and meaning really well, trusts in an even greater evil, becoming guilty of both the damnability, everything we've talked about, and then act, an active disbelief in it. If you think there is something valuable enough in you or me or any other human for God to save us just because, just because we are who we are, you're doubly evil. First, you're damnable to begin with. And second, the fact that you think you're salvageable makes you worse. You'd be better off. You'd be a better, honester sinner calling yourself an unsalvageable sinner. There's no good for me. I might as well be damned. That would be the most faithful thing you could do as a sinner. huh? But instead, what do we do? We mount disbelief on top of disbelief and build temples to it. Huh? Did you follow me? I know I made a big jump there. Fools will say that such thinking, that is everything I've been saying, that such thinking is depressing. But that's unbelief talking. Now, Pastor, how can you say that everything I ever do is damnable? That's just so depressing. Well, I guess you don't think about Jesus very much then, do you? Because only someone who doesn't think about Jesus could think it's depressing to hear about all the stuff Jesus saved us from. You follow me? I mean, damned when they're damnable hasn't reckoned with who Jesus is. And so when you talk about the level of our depravity, rather than have confidence in how great a God we have, they think it's cause for despair. And they'll call it out and they'll say, that's depressing. That's the fool talking. That's the fool talking. Christians can be fools, by the way, because there's a big difference between I believe in Jesus, which, in fact, is only said by those who do, and thinking like it. So, like, a baby, for example, believes in Jesus, I think, if they've been baptized, but they don't think like they believe in Jesus because they don't 
You know this about babies, right? They don't think. None, right? Um, they, they, they are pure instinct. So, learning to think like a Christian is different than being a Christian. In theory, I know this is going to be kind of like a little shocking, confirmation is when we taught you how to think like a Christian. I know. And it was like, didn't work, right? Um, I'm sorry. I keep trying to fix it. I don't know. My kids are the same thing. I was like, I don't know, Pastor. I don't know. Yeah, I know. We got, we got a, a lot of war ahead of us to deal with. But the point here is that you can still be a fool as a Christian, but you don't have to be. You can start thinking with your knowledge of God. So that, that wisdom finds in such thinking, that's what we've been talking about before, the desire for clear-sightedness and fertile ground for understanding true grace. When I'm able to call everything what it is, including my own evil, it awakens in me a desire to better understand it and to clearly call it what it is, to name it, to repent of it, and to seek a better way, and to seek a greater wisdom, and in that way, to relish the grace. There's this song everyone likes to sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, but I don't think we ever think about what it, what it means. Amazing Grace. Why is it amazing? What's amazing about it? It's a nice tune. It's an okay tune. It's good with like an accordion, by the way. Um, but what's so amazing about it? What well, saved a wretch like me? Did you ever think about that line? What's wretch mean? Go, go for it, Trinity. I wasn't really asking, but yeah, it was my daughter. A stupid person? No. A wretch is not stupid. A wretch is not stupid. A wretch is someone you want nothing to do with. You can imagine whatever it is. Maybe they haven't showered ever. Maybe they eat dirt for breakfast. Maybe they cover themselves in poop. Maybe they're just really mean and rude. Whatever you hate, that's what a wretch is. So when you say a wretch like me, you're saying, I loathe myself. Huh? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This much then is unalterably clear. I love this. So there's a typo in this sentence. There's a big typo. So that no matter what, that much is not unalterably clear. It's a very unclear statement. I don't even know what it means. I really mean that, which is funny because it says it's so clear and it's not. So I'm going to try to fix it right now while you watch. Here we go. Um, Each of us must utterly despair of doing anything good. Ah, it needs the word to here to end suffering and death. Before we may, yes, it makes sense now. This much then is unalterably clear. Each of us must utterly despair of doing anything good enough to end suffering and death before we may believe in the true grace is found in Christ. To really understand and think with the grace of Christ under your feet, you must despair of ending your own suffering. And you must despair of saving your own life. You must simply know, I will suffer, and then I will die. And when you've come to terms with that, that that's the damnable judgment you already have received, now you may see Christ. Because that's precisely the thing Christ saves you from. And a Christ who saves you from anything less than that is not much of a savior, I'll have to say. Some more Ecclesiastes just for fun. I don't know if it fully connects, but we're going to, I think it does. It's so good. New translation. You probably, if you've ever seen this before, I've seen it say something like meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, or vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Um, whatever. Nothing but vapor, David's son, king in Jerusalem says. Totally vapor. Everything is vapor that vanishes. What does anyone gain 
by all his hard work at which he works under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth keeps standing forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries back, panting out of breath to its starting point where it rises again. The wind goes round and round, blowing south, blowing north, keeps going round in circles. All streams keep flowing to the sea. The sea never gets full. The streams keep coming back to the same place, and then they flow out again. Everything is tedious and tiresome. More than one can tell. No eye ever sees enough. No ear ever gets its fill of hearing. Whatever has been is what will be again. Whatever has already been is what will be done again. There's nothing new. Is there a single thing about which one can say, look, it is new? You know what I always say is iPhone. Oh, the iPhone, it's new. And then I think, you know how little we know about before the flood? Like, like this much, like zero. We know names. So if you think there weren't iPhones before the flood, the burden of proof is on you to prove they weren't there. Now, they might not have called them iPhones. Maybe they called them Precambrian phones. I don't know. But the point is, don't question this. You don't know as much as you think you do. Yeah? Um, it's all been here. iPhone or not, doesn't matter. Whether they had the tool, doesn't matter. The ability to figure it out was there long ago. It's all been here. Nothing's new. It was already here. No one remembers, and this is his real point, is the people. No one remembers the people who came before us. And as for those who are coming after they are gone, no one will remember them either. The number of names recorded for history from over a thousand years ago that we still know today is like a handful of names. A handful of names. And even those are not, uh, it's not who they, we don't know who Shakespeare was. We don't know who Julius Caesar was. They're an idea. They're nothing more than that. So everything vanishes. Everything. Now again, is this despair? The fool thinks this is despair. I think this is hope. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to find joy in his work. This too I saw is from God's hand. For who can eat or enjoy himself apart from God? Yes, God gives wisdom, knowledge, happiness to the man whom he considers good. But to the person who goes on sinning, that's, in, that's the one who wants to justify himself with his hands, with, with his crystals and environmental, whatever. You know, the person who's always trying to prove their own good, what happens to them? God gives them the task of gathering and collecting. I'm going to slow it down here for just a second. If you just follow the pattern of the world, your life will be nothing but taking one brick from this pile and moving it to this pile over and over again. And you're like, well, this pile is theirs and this pile is mine. Look at my pile. I'm putting bricks in a pile. I'm so amazing. Oh, wait, I'm about to die. I have a big pile of bricks. What happens? Who's going to get it? I'm dead. That's life. That's all you got. Gathering and collecting only so that he can give it to a person whom God considers good. So all that piling up of whatever, it just passes with the wind. Just passes with the wind. This too is vapor, nothing but a chasing of the wind. So how do we find hope in this? How do we live in this? In the sight of God then, even our greatest errors are meaningless. That's how. Provided that they are believed to be damnable. This is where the good news really starts to click. Although it should be an N and not a R. When your best works are filthy rags, when the best that you do is tainted with sin, that means that the worst that you do isn't worse. It's just as bad. So every failure, every weakness, every incompletion, every time you're afraid, every time you can't do it, every time you don't do it, also is meaningless. 
That's the good news. Because it means that no matter what happened yesterday, today, you can do new. Today, you can do now. The past does not chase you, nor does the future have to scare you. You can simply live right where you are, a forgiven, standing Christian, confident that Jesus is sufficient in all things. That is amazing. That is a superpower. Our greatest errors are meaningless, believed to be forgiven in Jesus. If you look upon the things that happen and are happening in the world as if through them you might read the will of God, then you do not know the true God at all. You only know the world. The one who tries to know God through what is seen, that is, through his works, his feelings, his thoughts, will only blind, puff up, and harden his own mind against reality. He'll have to try to convince himself that that world is good. When all evidences say, uh, we're getting murdered out there, and if there is a God, he's the one murdering us. That would be bad. That would be the definition of bad, would it not? So that in that world out there, we say we're going to achieve good with justice, virtue. We're going to make good people do this, do that. And it, it's never done. And it doesn't matter which system you're in. Or you want to be a socialist or a capitalist. Do this, do that. It's never done. The wrath of God is justice, however. Justice is accusing us, condemning us, refusing to pity us, and ultimately killing us insofar as we're outside of Christ. Every human being on this planet is dying because they're a sinner. And it's God who is killing them as his punishment against sin. That again can be like, well, that's depressing. Or it's the path to salvation and hope. Because the wrath of God is never evil. Because God's good. So his wrath must be good. And it's good against evil. And for this reason, we shouldn't avoid the Ten Commandments. That's a bit of a tangent. But if you do not know God in Jesus, who was crucified... Well, then you can only be in that wrath and evil. You can only abuse even the best things in pursuit of your self-worshipping. So outside of Christ, there is nothing but that wrath. There is no hope. Inside of Christ, there's a whole other thing, but we're not quite there yet. We kind of had this earlier. This is the rest of the actual thesis. The one who seeks to know God through his experiences will call evil good and good evil. The one who knows God in the crucified Christ is free, able to call all things what they truly are, truly enlightened. So the only one who knows God is the one who, against himself really, understands that everything which happens is understood only at the foot of Jesus' crucifixion. So again, back to where we were at the start. The answer to why is Jesus crucified on the cross. The answer to what for? Jesus crucified on the cross. The answer to where should I go now? Well, to Jesus crucified on the cross. Well, what about today and my neighbor? Well, help your neighbor. But then when you're worried about whether you were good enough, what should you do? Jesus is crucified on the cross. It's the only knowledge of God that is truly spiritual. And so whereas justice is always saying, and this is, this is your nugget to take today, by the way. Take this. Justice says, do this, and it's never done. Jesus says, I forgive you, and it's all finished already. It's all done already. That distinction, that difference between those two things, we call it as Lutherans, law and gospel. The idea is a word that says, do it, and a word that's just a gift. That difference is everything in thinking with your Christianity, and knowing how to smell out false teaching, because false teaching wants to get rid of this. Always. 
and wants to push you back on this. We're almost done. Hang with me for just a moment more. Um, we're going to actually skip that one. Ah. I'm going to start here. Mankind loves that which we find to be pleasing. Right? You see something, you say, I like that, or I don't like that. And it has everything to do with you judging it. I, actually, I didn't, I really didn't want a yellow one. I wanted a red one, but they were out of the red one, so I bought a yellow one. I liked it more than the orange one. Sorry, Anastasia, my daughter, who would prefer orange in all things. Um, all the same, I like this more than didn't like it, so I own it now. But that's a judgment. I judged it. You see that? It already exists apart from me, and my love of it is related upon my judgment of it. God's not like that. Okay? God's the opposite. So we please God, not by doing for him, but by him doing to us, so that he doesn't love that which he finds pleasing. He doesn't go and look at you and say, well, should I love you or not? I'm not sure. Rather, God creates what he finds pleasing by loving it. Whoa. That's, that's, that's such a big idea. He creates what he finds pleasing by loving it. He, does, he comes to something unpleasing, loves it, and it becomes pleasing. Not just to him, but to all. And this is how he's saving the world. He's looking at you, damnable sinners, don't deserve a darn, th- darn thing. It's the right word. Don't deserve a damn thing. And he loves you anyway. And in that loving, you become pleasing not only to him just because he chose that, but eventually it bleeds out around you to everybody else. You begin to come pleasing to them through his love coming through you. It's a completely different way of looking at things. And that's really very much, again, at the heart of this. So that he is truly good, who rather than do much, Ten Commandments can teach you a perfect life but can't get you there. Instead, whether before or after good works, still doing good works, believes much in Christ. Believes much in Christ. We talk about grace alone, faith alone, all that. It's because we're trying to get to this idea that all that we do in this life is just dust. It's dying dust. But Jesus is not. Jesus is resurrected man. And so in him, you can just let it die. Better than that, you can play in it. You got a free gift, a whole life that's a game. You can't lose. Worst thing that happens is you die and wake up on resurrection day. Oh, well, too bad. I didn't make it as far. Maybe I shouldn't have parachuted. I don't know. Yeah? But, and it does, it's, not a, it's not a license to be stupid. It's a license to not be afraid, to be confident that you stand well-placed on the rock of your salvation, which is your binding to Jesus. And since the whole world is built of sand, build a sandcastle and have fun while you do it. Just don't trust the sandcastle. Trust the rock who's outside of it all who rose, ascended, returning, all those things. There's so much more that could be said. I feel like I didn't say enough. But thank you. I'll be here if you have any questions and want to ask afterwards. Otherwise, enjoy your afternoon. City's inhabitants are losing their minds. Trigger warning. This 
ain't a safe space. Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please? <laughs>